Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining podcasts. Do you like to listen? This episode of History Goes Bump is entirely listener-supported. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 234th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. On this episode, we are going to be going back to the Old West, to another ghost town that is reputedly haunted, and that is Calico. This was suggested to us by three of our listeners, Liana Sapien, Anna Prado Frias, and Laura Ray. And Denise, I'm feeling a little under the weather, so my voice is probably sounding a little off to everybody. Or as you like to say, sexy. Yeah, I've got the sexy voice on for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> we want to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Crystal. Hey, Crystal. Tiffany. Hi, Tiffany. Ashley. Hello, Ashley. Jordan. Hi, Jordan. And Megan. Hey, Megan. And now this moment in oddity. Joseph Force Crater had been born to Irish immigrants in 1889, and he went on to getting his law degree from Columbia University in 1916. This would start his path to becoming a New York Supreme Court Justice. He was named to the bench in April of 1930 by Governor Franklin D. Roosevelt. Crater was a corrupt man, and it is believed that he had paid off the Tammany Hall political machine to get his position. On August 6, 1930, Crater reportedly went to his office and destroyed several documents. He took several portfolios of other papers to his Fifth Avenue apartment. He took out $5,000 from his bank account as well. He had dinner with a friend and a showgirl named Sally Lou Ritz. He told them that he had tickets for a Broadway comedy dancing partner that evening. He bid them farewell and they watched him walk down the street, presumably heading for the play. He was seen hailing a cab and was never seen again. News of his disappearance broke on September 3rd and launched a massive investigation that captivated the nation. Crater came to be known as the missingest man in New York. Because of his activity on the day of his disappearance, some claimed that he left the country with a mistress. Others claimed that he was feeding the fishes after crossing the Tammany Hall bosses. His wife requested that he be declared legally dead in 1939. In 2005, new evidence emerged. A woman claimed that her husband and several other men, including a police officer, had murdered Crater and buried his body beneath a section of the Coney Island boardwalk. That site had been excavated during the construction of the New York Aquarium in the 1950s, but no human remains were found at the time. The disappearance of Judge Crater is still a mystery, and certainly is odd. 
This history podcast is haunted. And now, this month in history. In the month of November, on the 29th in 1775, Congress creates the Committee of Secret Correspondence. The Second Continental Congress had met in Philadelphia to establish the Committee of Secret Correspondence. The committee's goal was to solicit aid for the Revolutionary War from European nations by sending them a patriot interpretation of events in Britain's colonies. The committee members were Benjamin Franklin, Benjamin Harrison, John Dickinson, John Hay, Robert Morris, and Silas Dean. Dean was a Connecticut delegate, and he left for France on the secret mission on March 3, 1776. The group managed to negotiate with the French unofficial assistance. This assistance came as military supplies aboard ships and military expertise from the Marquis de Lafayette. Full support did not come until the American victory at the Battle of Saratoga. French naval fleets proved critical in the defeat of the British during the American Revolution, which was assured after the Battle of Yorktown in October 1781. The Calico Mountains rise out of the Mojave Desert, painted in a variety of colors, which is how they got their name. These mountains are home to Calico, a ghost town that was once a thriving mining town. As was the case with so many other mining towns, once the price of silver dropped, people started leaving. The gunfights, gambling, and mining of the past just faded away. Today, it is a tourist attraction that seems to be still home for some of the spirits of its former residents. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of the town of Calico. In 1881, a group of prospectors discovered silver in the Calico Mountains. They laid claim to their find and built the Silver King Mine. This mine would become California's largest silver producer in the mid-1880s. The town of Calico grew slowly, but by 1882 was big enough to establish a post office. Next came the Calico Print, a weekly newspaper. Calico hit its height of silver production from 1883 to 1885, and during that time the town added five general stores, three hotels, several bars, boarding houses, and brothels, of course, a meat market, Wells Fargo office, and a school. The town also had a deputy sheriff, two constables, five commissioners, two lawyers, a justice of the peace, and two doctors. There were residents here from all over the world, including Ireland, England, France, Greece, China, and the Netherlands. The population hit 3,500 people. When silver mining was at its pinnacle in Calico, there were over 500 mines, and the most important were the Waterloo, Oriental, Burning Moscow, Bismarck, and Garfield. A narrow-gauge railroad was constructed in 1888 to bring ore from the Waterloo and Silver King mines to the mill in town. There was more than just silver adding to Calico's fortunes. The borate mineral culminite was discovered in the mountains a few years after the settlement of the town. Unfortunately, fortunes turned for Calico with the enactment of the Silver Purchase Act. This drove down the price of silver, and by 1896, its value had decreased to 57 cents per troy ounce. Within two years, the post office had closed and was soon followed by the school. Borax mining ended in 1907, and Calico became a virtual ghost town. By the time it was abandoned, the mines of Calico had produced between 13 and $20 million worth of silver. 
For a time in the 1930s, the Zinda Gold Mining Company mined the silver from the Calico Mines. There is still low-grade silver in the mines of Calico. So, Denise, I know how you like to mine. Maybe we should head on out there and you can get a little pickaxe and go to town. I was just thinking the same thing. Go get some more treasures out of the earth. Get a bucket of dirt. Yes, ma'am. Walter Knott was born in San Bernardino County and grew up in Pomona. He tried his hand at farming and didn't have much luck until he started working with boysenberries. And I love that jam, may I just say? They thrived under his care and the family started creating jams and pies from the berries and selling them at a roadside stand. Before long, they opened a restaurant that also featured his wife's fried chicken dinners. Lines wrapped around outside the building. Not got the idea that it would be fun to open a park to entertain the people waiting for food. He started relocating old buildings from ghost towns to his farm and named the park Knott's Berry Farm. Have you ever been there, Denise? I have when I was a kid. I used to love going there as a kid. I actually almost preferred it to Disneyland. <gasps> I know, sacrilege. I was about to say. And truth be told, it actually was there before Disneyland. So it is one of the first amusement parks ever. But that's because Disneyland was a theme park. Oh, okay. <laughs> Not had a real love for Old West towns, and in 1951, he purchased Calico. And the reason why he chose Calico is because he had once lived there with his uncle. He restored the town back to its former glory and opened it as a tourist attraction. The buildings had originally been constructed from adobe brick because there wasn't much lumber in the area. Obviously, we're talking about the Mojave Desert here. Not had cement used in the restoration so that it would continue to have that kind of adobe look to it. And he made sure, looking back at old pictures and stuff, that he got everything to be as close to the original as possible. And some of it even could be from his own memory since he had lived there. In 1966, Knott donated the town to San Bernardino County and Calico became a county regional park. Visitors who come to Calico get to see what the town looked like in its heyday, and they get to experience some of the things that took place here like panning for gold and gunfights. There are tours of the mine, and visitors can ride aboard the narrow-gauge Calico and Odessa Railroad. Many of the original buildings had to be replaced. The newer buildings are in the gingerbread architectural style, and there are some false fronts as well. Some of the structures that date back to the Silver Rush era are the Lane Home that is now a museum, Little Saloon, the town office, courthouse and post office, the general store, Joe's Saloon, and Smitty's Gallery. The schoolhouse is a replica but stands on the site of the former building. There is a cemetery here that has over 160 burials. Despite their best efforts, historians and researchers have been unable to identify most of the people who are buried here. Only about 20% of the plots have been identified, and they've used ground-penetrating radar and all kinds of things. That's how they know there's about 160 bodies there. But when they've gone back through the records, unfortunately, there's not many records to begin with, and they didn't keep very good records. So most of the headstones are no longer there, and so they don't know who's there. One of the people buried here is Harry Dodson, who robbed the Runover Mines Superintendent James Patterson at gunpoint. He nabbed around $4,400 and ran out of town. And then James Patterson became an author and became a <laughs> multimillionaire in Florida. <laughs> Wrong guy. Who would have thunk that he'd been robbed early on? Exactly. But might have been his motivation to become one of my favorite authors. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> so a posse was formed and they caught up to Dodson pretty quickly because he was on foot. He was just hiking up from a watering hole when he saw the posse and started shooting. The posse returned fire and hit him twice, killing him. 
Anastasio Rubio was buried here after he came to a sad end. He had gotten a great haul in the mines, and he wasn't really thinking because he bursts into the local saloon where all of his friends are drinking and lets them all know, wow, I just made a bunch of money. Drinks are on me. Well, not everybody in the saloon is your friend, right? And maybe some of your friends are not really your friends. So when he left the bar that night, he was shot and robbed by an unknown assailant, and his murder remains unsolved to this day. We did an episode on the ghost town Bodie, and that is the official state gold rush ghost town of California. Calico was named the official state silver rush ghost town. There are reportedly several spirits from this ghost town, making that description of the town legitimate. Ghost tours are offered every Saturday night. One of the haunted locations here is the Calico Schoolhouse. Claims have been made that the building is haunted by both teachers and students. Could one of these teachers be Margaret Kincaid Oliver, who is buried in the cemetery? Visitors claim to see the apparitions of school teachers peering out at them from the windows. A moving ball of red light has been seen inside the schoolhouse on multiple occasions. The apparitions of children have been seen inside here as well, but the most frequent spirit belongs to a girl that appears to be 11 or 12 years old. She only makes herself known to other children. Sometimes she is mistaken by the children who see her as being a real kid until she disappears. John and Lucy Lane ran a general store in Calico, and of course this offered all the dry goods that anybody could possibly need in a mining town. When people started moving out, they decided to leave too. But they missed the old town, and they returned in 1919 to their general store, and they lived there for a time, and then they eventually moved to the old post office and made that their home. Now, in the 1930s, John died, but Lucy continued to live there until the 1960s, and she was in her 90s when she died there. Her former home has been turned into a museum, and visitors claim to see her apparition walking from the home to the general store as though she's heading off to work. She's always seen wearing a black lacy dress, and there are claims that she was buried in that dress. So there's proof, Denise, that whatever you die in or are buried in, that's what you get to be in for the rest of the afterlife. So make sure it's good. Oh, my. I'm trying to think of when I would want to die, what I would be wearing. (laughs) Visitors and investigators have seen her rocking chair moving on its own in the house. Tumbleweed Harris is buried in the Calico Cemetery. He was the last marshal of Calico and served in that position for seven years. Visitors have claimed to see his spirit walking along the boardwalks on Main Street. He's described as a rather large man with a flowing white beard. Arthur wrote, I work at the restaurant here in Calico and live in the town as well. One morning before daylight, I was making coffee in the restaurant and felt as if someone was standing behind me. I turned and glimpsed a man with a white beard for a split second and then he disappeared. It jumped me right out of my shoes. Must have been Marshall Tumbleweed. Calico has its own lady in white who's seen on the outskirts of town. Nobody's quite sure who she is. The Calico Corral has a residual haunting that sounds like a crowd of people celebrating. This was used for dances and the sounds of ghostly music are also heard sometimes. Music is also heard at Lil's Saloon. and This is one of the original buildings that still remains in the town. The music sounds like an old-style piano and the noises of a rowdy crowd have been heard when no one is in the building. Employees claim to hear the jingle of spurs and other noises that can't be explained. The building that once housed the town theater, which is now the R&D Fossils and Minerals Shop, and I'm sure that's a place you'd love to hit up, Denise. Yes, I would. Is said to be haunted by a female ghost named Esmeralda. I don't think she's in that movie, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Oh, geez, you took the words right out of my mouth. (laughs) 
Another famous ghost in the town belongs to a dog named Dorsey, who carried mail around the town. Postmaster Jim Stacy found Dorsey in 1883. He was a black and white shepherd who was hungry and limping. Stacy adopted him and put him to work carrying messages back and forth from the mines to town. This moved into mail carrying, and he was soon carrying all the mail from Caligo to Bismarck, bearing his load in little pouches strapped to his back. That just blows my mind that a dog knew to take these messages back and forth and the mail back and forth. Yeah, he's a smart pup. Because what happened is Jim Stacy thought, I need to get this message out to the mines. Why don't I put it on Dorsey and see if he'll take it? So he puts the message on Dorsey and must have said, go see blah, blah, blah at the mine. He ran out there. He got an answer and brought that answer to the message back. That is amazing. We would tell Tiana that and she'd just give us a kiss my butt look. Yeah, she'd growl at us or (laughs) something. (laughs) And Dorsey did it for three years. His legend was immortalized in a 1972 album entitled The Ballad of Calico by Kenny Rogers. The song was called Dorsey, the Mail Carrying Dog. Dorsey continues on as a specter, and his shadow-like apparition has been seen at the cemetery and near the print shop that is located where the post office used to be. Hank's hotel once belonged to a cowboy that some say was named Hank. He was apparently an angry man, and he has carried that on with him into the afterlife. His ghost is said to have punched a man in the leg who was standing on his fence. Others report feeling a tugging on their wrists and clothing. There's said to be a child of four or five that hangs around outside the hotel on the boardwalk, and some of the clothes tugging could be a result of his activity. The Maggie Mine was started by the Mulcahy brothers in 1881. $13 million worth of silver ore was pulled from this mine. Visitors are invited to tour the mine, and many of them have reported feeling extreme cold spots throughout the mine and eerie feelings. It's believed the Mulcahy brothers, who made the mine their home, are haunting the mine to this day. To add to the weird feelings, a couple of mannequins are a part of the props here. That would be kind of creepy to be in a mine and then turn around and there's a mannequin. Because I know those ones up in St. Augustine at the Ripley's Museum always freak me out. And what's bad about those ones is there a lot of them are of odd people like the lizard man and such. Yes. Ghost towns are a wonderful way to immerse oneself in the Old West of yesteryear. Calico has a colorful name to go with its colorful past, and some of that past continues on today. Not just in the fake gunfights and the false facades, but through the spirits who have remained here when everyone else has abandoned the town. Is Calico a haunted town? That is for you to decide. Sounds like a cool place to visit. I know that uh, Leanna Sapien went out there and did a tour, and Anna Prado-Frias was supposed to go out there and do an investigation. I'm not sure if she did or not. It'd be interesting to find out if they caught anything. It is amazing how many cool places there are in all of these different states. And so every time we research and do an episode on places, I'm just like, oh my gosh, I want to go there in person. I don't just want to talk about it. We'd love to have you check out our website at historygoesbump.com. And Denise, if people want to send us some feedback, where can they do that? They can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. We heard from Shelby and the Spooktacular crew. People may recall that Shelby's mom owns a haunted bar and restaurant. And Shelby does the desserts and works there occasionally and has had some experiences there. A lot of the quote-unquote normal things like disembodied voices, hearing footsteps when there's nobody around, lights being turned off and on, doors opening and closing, crashes, bangs, that kind of thing. If you can call that stuff normal. 
Well, she wanted to share that something a little bit more than normal happened the other day to her. So Shelby was there working on desserts, and then she likes to stage the desserts and take pictures and post them to entice people to come in and try some of it. And she was just getting ready to take a photo of a particularly delicious looking piece of Oreo cheesecake, which sounds to die for to me, when she felt a sharp, firm grab on her left shoulder, hard enough that she flinched and was startled, and she spun around really quick to see who was grabbing her. There was no one there. My startle quickly turned into an icy fear. The chef is standing at the range doing what he does best, cooking. His back is to me and he's clearly in his own world. There's a ton of distance between us as well as his own prep counters. Not to mention this is not a guy who messes around in the kitchen nor touches anyone ever. I quickly walk to the corner and glance towards the front of the house thinking my stepdad is messing with me. He and the waiter have a habit of trying to scare me mainly by grabbing me by my shoulders when they think I'm not paying attention or don't think I hear them. The kitchen doors were closed and there's no sign of movement. So if somebody had been behind her and quickly escaped, you would think the kitchen door would be moving. I head out to the front of the house to see if he was just quick enough to really get me. The bar and restaurant are empty. I call out to him. No answer. I hear the sound of the upstairs office door closing and the clear sounds of him in his faithful lab walking from the far side of the upstairs office to the top of the stairs and then him softly talking to her as they descend the stairs together. They turned the corner and I could see he had clearly gone upstairs and changed into his kitchen uniform. He had no idea what I was talking about when I accused him of trying to scare me and lecturing him on the fact that it's probably not a good idea to mess with a hormonal pregnant lady. He has a horrible poker face when trying to act innocent and his innocence was clearly written all over his face and rationally there's no way he got upstairs that fast to have pulled it off. He's more of the scare and stick around to laugh type anyways. We were the only three in the restaurant and I was seriously shaken. It was not threatening, or at least didn't feel that way, nor menacing, but it was the first time I'd ever been touched. It was strong and sharp and clearly purposeful. I've spent the last couple of weeks running it through my head, trying to brush it off or find excuses. I've only told my parents and the chef. The only logical conclusion I could come to is that whoever or whatever it was has watched my stepdad or our waiter messing with me over the course of months and thought they'd get in on the fun. Needless to say, I haven't been back to work alone since. Wow, that is... Something else. I I told her, I don't blame you. I think it probably was mimicking some of the playfulness that the others have done since it didn't feel threatening, but I would not want to be touched. (laughs) And so I don't blame her for being spooked. Oh, no kidding. Something grabbed me and I turned around and there was nothing there. Then I would have to borrow a pair of your Depends. (laughs) We have a couple of reviews from Apple Podcasts to share. First one is from Al Frederick. Unusual and surprising, five stars. History, the unabridged version with info on those that are possibly still reliving it. I love it. Thank you for that. MC Burr, great show, five stars. I'm a history teacher and I really enjoy the fresh approach of this podcast. I'm also a member of the Spooktacular crew. I love this show. Keep it up, ladies. Well, thank you and thank you for joining us over at the crew. And then Lady Nakid, love this show, five stars. History Ghost Bump combines two of my favorite topics, history and ghosts. Love the hosts. They're fun and endearing. Nothing makes a long day at work or a long car ride go by like this show does. Thanks for all y'all do. You are welcome. And sounds like you must be somebody from the South. We want to thank you guys for tuning into this episode. I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We'd like to thank Tim Rich and Gwen Cohen-Brown for increasing your pledges. And thanks to Paul and Kim Surek for your one-time donation. Fan of the show? Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast catcher.
We would greatly appreciate your review at iTunes as well to help the show grow. Thank you.